0: Welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Last year, we sent out a survey to all our Breakpoints listeners and asked which infectious diseases-related topics should cover on this podcast, ranging from journal clubs to interviews to clinical controversies. The number one most requested topic was the subject of our episode today, and that is combination therapy for MRSA bacteremia. Before we dive into our topic and I introduce our guests, I want to let our listeners know that in the episode description of today's episode, you will find a link to a brief survey. We want to hear from you, so please go to your podcast app or however you listen to your podcast, expand those details for today's episode, click the survey link, and take a few minutes to fill it out. We want to keep bringing you the content that you want and need and that you're here for. So let us know how we can keep helping you. So we're really excited to dive into this and I'm honored to be joined by three experts in this field and really can't wait for our discussion today. So first off, I am joined by Dr. Katie Barber, who's an associate professor at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. And Katie also rounds on the Inpatient Infectious Diseases Consult Team at the University of Mississippi Medical Center.
1: Hi, Erin. Thank you for having me.
0: Hey, Katie. Thanks for joining us. And our second guest is Dr. Warren Rose, who's an associate professor with the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy and also has an adjunct of professorship with the School of Medicine. He also has a clinical practice appointment with the University of Wisconsin Health System.
2: Oh, pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks for joining us, Warren. And then last, but certainly not least, we're thrilled to be joined by our colleague across the globe. So Associate Professor Stephen Tong is an infectious diseases physician with the Victorian Infectious Diseases Service and co-head of the Translational and Clinical Research and Indigenous Health Cross-Cutting Disciplines at the Doherty Institute. And yes, I practiced that one a few times to make sure I said it right. So Stephen, thanks so much for joining us and for kind of pulling an all-nighter to record this podcast. I think it's 10 p.m. your time.
3: Thanks, Aaron. Well, it's such a delight to be here, and it's not quite an all-nighter, and at the moment I'm not allowed out anyway. In Melbourne, we're under a strict curfew from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. every night because of COVID.
0: Oh, that sounds responsible of your country.
3: <laughs> we're really not ha- we're, not well, much we're fun, happy,
0: we- we're happy we could entertain you, and no better way to spend COVID time than by podcasting together, so thank you guys all for being here. Um, but all right, team, let's, let's just dive in and get started discussing, again, our most requested topic ever. So you guys apparently do all the cool science in, in the ID world. But the best place to start is the beginning. So how and why did this even become a thing? Why are we suddenly giving our patients combination therapies for MRSA bacteremia? Um, where did this kind of concept evolve? And we're going to walk through from the in vitro all the way through the clinical data. So Warren and Katie, you both have done a ton of laboratory work in this space, so I think it's probably best if you kick us off with the history behind evaluating these therapies.
1: Yeah, Aaron, a lot of the combination therapy work began in staff, particularly in the Detroit area in 2012 while I was an ID resident. And then it actually continued on throughout my fellowship there.
0: Katie, I'm actually going to interrupt you really quick. You're, that was phenomenal. Great first sentence, especially because we have international guests on this episode and, and a lot of international listeners to Breakpoints. Do you mind quickly explaining in the United States what pharmacy residency and fellowship training is and looks like and what that means?
1: Sure. Uh, once a pharmacy student graduates from pharmacy school, they can go directly out into the workforce. However, if they do want to pursue a career in clinical pharmacy, They need to usually complete a one-year pharmacy residency, which would be similar to an internal medicine or general residency that physicians do. They can also do a second-year specialty residency in various disciplines of medicine, um, including infectious diseases. Uh, Conversely, a pharmacy fellowship typically lasts two to three years and focuses primarily on research.
0: Gotcha. Thanks, Kitty. And you, for our audience, you did four years, right? You did two years of residency and two years
1: of fellowship? Yes, glutton for punishment.
0: (laughs) We're very, very smart. Okay, I'm done interrupting you now. Back to how you started playing with MRSA combo therapies in your lab. Particularly if you could tell us about daptoceftaline since you did a lot of the original work and published a lot of the original data in that space surrounding that combination.
1: Yeah, so as a resident, we were seeing patients um, with elevated vancomycin MICs. Uh, Clinically, they were having persistent bacteremia. Ultimately, Mike Ryback's lab collects like every staph aureus from a patient with bacteremia and did um, some lab work on these strains and ultimately identified that many of these patients actually had HVs strains. The initial goal was really to determine what the best therapeutic option was for these resistant organisms that we were observing clinically. Um, but also to have a plan B for the future rise of resistance that will inevitably occur. So, Charlene was brand new at the time. Um, and so the lab was already doing experiments with it. And then we identified this combination, um, which was particularly exciting because both of these agents are active against MRSA. Um, but then the focus really shifted once identifying that this combination was potent, it was to figure out why, what was so special about these true drugs, and then moving the focus to other types of organisms and see where else we could get some benefit.
0: Thanks, Katie. That was that was awesome. And then Warren, I think Katie kind of teed up how this came to be. And I think at least how I understand it is in your lab and some of your colleagues then helped Dr. Rybeck's lab in Detroit kind of start to figure out this why. So do you want to walk us through some of your initial lab work with this?
2: Sure. Uh, most of the work that we started with was primarily adaptomycin based. Um, And really the thing we sought out to understand is how resistance develops and then what can be used to prevent resistance as opposed to vancomycin, which has been around for such a long time. Daptomycin is relatively easy to select for both in vitro and in vivo for resistance development. So we were really interested to understand how we can prevent that. And so we initially screened a number of antibiotics in combination that have been used clinically either in animals uh, in in the in vivo setting in animals or clinically in patients that had shown some benefit either in case reports or clinical cohort studies and we screened and looked at what drugs could prevent resistance and we didn't set out to find a particular hypothesis. We were just screening and and lo and behold it was interesting what we found is that phosphomycin and oxacillin were the best at preventing resistance in the first few days of exposure, up to seven days, um, but only extended out to beta lactams, oxacillin, up to four weeks. And so to us that was very surprising. I know some of the, at the time, this was around 2010-2011, at that time a lot of the work on seesaw effects were combining with um, some of the old data on some of the synergistic effects of beta lactams, but finding that it prevented resistance was very surprising. And so from then on we sought to understand how that happened and then um, furthering that how we can uh, then screen a number of different antibiotics whether they have all the same effect or whether there's differential changes that happen with the different beta lactams and so uh, we dug in heavily on the mechanistic side understood from a genetic level what prevented that resistance how that might happen And then potentially, as we'll get into, I think, what differentiates these beta-lactams to to make them more effective or less effective than each other. Again, particularly speaking, just adaptomycin.
0: That's fascinating work. And for our audience, do one of you, either Katie or Warren, either one of you can take this. Do you mind describing just what, when we say seesaw effect, I'm sure some of us are familiar with this concept. Some of us aren't. Do you mind describing in your own words what that means and what we're seeing with some of these combinations?
2: I think Katie had originally done a lot of the work there, so I'll let her take that.
1: Yeah, so ultimately, um, in a nutshell, in the most simplistic form that I can say it is, the seesaw effect essentially is as vancomycin or ultimately daptomycin MICs increase, uh, we tend to see the beta-lactam MICs decrease. So you see this inversely proportional um, change in MICs.
0: Awesome, thanks guys. All right so that's a great historical kind of lab perspective and how we started evaluating these therapies and then really why Um, and it's neat just to remember to reframe that this started a lot in context with increasing resistance and seeing kind of this untreatable mrsa for lack of a better term in the detroit metro area let's kind of move into the clinical data so stephen you have designed two whole trials around this concept which I imagine doesn't happen overnight. I imagine that's quite a long process to start to think, you know, you start to see some of these, these lab data and and these patients, and then you get a team together and you're like, we're going to, we're going to study this, which is awesome. Do you mind kind of, I don't even know where you start, but do you mind talking us through, you know, where you guys got the idea for your trials and what data you were watching in this space and then how that kind of unfolded?
3: Sure. Thanks, Aaron. And um, if you'll indulge me, I'll give a bit of history. So, oh, yeah, the floor two, is yours. Or the. <laughs> it was about 2010, fall. and I was uh, based in Darwin, which is right up at the top of Australia. So, Darwin's in the Northern Territory. And amongst other things, the Northern Territory is known for its tropical weather and also quite a large Aboriginal Australian population. So, something like 25 to 30% of the population is Aboriginal Australian. And in infectious diseases, some of your listeners may be interested. It's um, famous for Burkholderia pseudomallei. So it's you know real hot spot for that, uh, community acquired asaneta back to Balmanii, uh, pneumonia, and really high rates of streptococcal infections and rheumatic heart disease, um, but perhaps most pertinently to this discussion, it's got the highest rates of um, MRSA or MRSA in Australia. So I really just finished my PhD in 2010 and remember sitting down in the tea room with a fellow PhD student Josh Davis, and we've just had this ongoing collaboration since then. And we really literally said to each other, what are we going to do next? And two of the things we were seeing clinically, so this is similar to Katie's story, it's just what's kind of causing the burden of disease, were a lot of MRSA infections and actually lots of hepatitis B infections as well. So we decided to embark on investigating both of these things, end up describing a new genotype of hepatitis B. Um, But for MRSA, we kind of said, we're seeing lots of MRSA bloodstream infections. What can we do about this? And there was already some laboratory data in vitro and animal models from the 1990s and 2000s that were quite consistently showing synergy between vancomycin and beta-lactams for MRSA. Um, Alexander Thomas's lab had described one of the first cases of visa in a dialysis patient who'd been heavily exposed to vanc in a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1999. If you go back to that paper, the last figure on it, figure five, is a population analysis profile of the VISA strain, Uh, panel A with VANC and panel B with oxacillin. And what's really striking is that that PAP, the population analysis profile, are both shifted to the left when a sub-inhibitory concentration of the other antibiotics included in the the media. So you see the VANC PAP, and then when the media includes some oxacillin, it just shifts way over to the left. And And they actually end up their paper saying that combination therapy with vanc and a beta-lactam uh, is potentially a, a, a therapy that should be looked at in the future for such strains. But what was lacking was prospective randomized clinical data. So I guess a hypothesis had been generated and we felt that it was time to test this in patients. And somehow, you know, as, as nearly minted PhD students, we sold the idea to a few colleagues around Australia uh, and embarked upon our first clinical trial, which was camera one. Um, and you know, in retrospect, probably quite foolhardy given that this was our first clinical trial that we tried to run. We didn't have any specific funding for it. Um, so it was designed as a very pragmatic trial across seven hospital sites in Australia, uh, comparing vancomycin monotherapy with vanc plus flucoxicillin, which is our standard um, anti-staphylococcal uh, penicillin. We eventually recruited 60 patients over a three-year period and published the results in 2016. And the key finding was that the mean duration of bacteremia was reduced by one calendar day in those who received combination therapy.
0: Awesome. So a couple of things to tease out there. First, I think that's very, very cool in terms of MRSA. But I think the most interesting thing you said was that you have a tea room in your fellowship <laughs> or in your PhD. Is that is that exactly what it sounds like? You just drink tea?
3: Yeah, like coffee, room? coffee, really. A break room. Break, we had a table tennis table room? and um, something, you know, there was just the main congregational meeting area for our um for the institute that we were at
0: we call them break rooms tea room is so much better so all right that was the first thing (laughs) second (laughs) uh second and this will be important later when we talk about camera two so of course your second trial that our audience is probably more familiar with we've discussed it a few times on the breakpoints podcast thus far Uh, those results of course published a few months ago in 2020 um but when you did camera one and you looked at this combination you saw about one day shorter of clearance of bacteremia and no signal of harm correct
2: when you
3: go back and look really closely there was actually a slight increase in the risk of acute kidney injury in the combination therapy arm but because we had such small numbers it didn't reach any statistical significance Um, okay you know in retrospect that was obviously something we should have kept our eye on um but at the time we we almost brushed past it to be honest
0: Interesting. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And then, Warren, I think you also have experience in, in designing randomized trials with your colleagues, or at least participating in these adventures. Um, so this was a trial that was published in 2019 in AAC by Gariak and colleagues, and this looked at the dapto and ceftaroline combination. So this was another prospective trial, also quite small. Can you talk to our audience about how that trial was conceived, how it was designed, and, and, and the results of that and seeing that through?
2: Sure. Um, A lot of the work that I've done over the years has been with a colleague of mine, George Sikoulis. He's a physician probably well known to the uh, pharmacy community, but he's a physician out of UCSD. Um, And we've been working a lot on these combinations, kind of understanding how these uh, beta-lactams might work to uh, affect or enhance aptomycin synergy. And so we had done a few uh, case studies and case reports that had looked at daptomycin combined with uh, beta-lactams, primarily either, um, you know, oxacillin, or Um And given the fact that cefteroline has inherent, you know, MRSA activity, it just made sense to, to go that route. And a lot of people, I think, were using it at that time because of that. Um, so having that kind of clear foundation for synergy, we really wanted to focus on daptomycin. We kind of set out to do two separate studies. One was looking retrospectively um, at the combination daptomycin ceftaroline versus the standard of care, which was either vancomycin or daptomycin, um, and then run the prospective study concomitantly while we're collecting the retrospective data, and Interestingly, how it fell out is that whenever the patients were being enrolled into the prospective study, again, similar to what Stephen had mentioned about doing a clinical trial, we, we, it's not the uh, it's not going to win any clinical trial design awards for how it was done, um, but it is randomized, it is pilot a pilot study, and it's a real world pilot study, which makes it very challenging, um, and so we. Um, ran that concomitantly. I think at the time, we wanted to include three medical centers, which would be San Diego, Wisconsin, and Henry Ford. Uh, but there were some challenges at Wisconsin. We weren't able to enroll any patients uh, in the study, so it ended up being just Henry Ford and San Diego. Um, and uh, the issue is that whenever the initial data were evaluated after the uh, uh, realizing some of the outcomes in the patients, unblinded, Um, and then there's an external advisory board that looked at the patients and and the outcomes, and we thought at that time it was prudent to stop the study given the outcomes, and the outcomes basically showed that of the 20 or so patients enrolled in the combination arm, none of the patients died, and of the ones enrolled, same amount, 19 or 20 patients in the the, uh, monotherapy arm, primarily vancomycin, uh, we had a a mortality rate of about 15%, um, up to 20%, I think. So, um, you know, at that time we had to stop the study and it was published, we were still collecting the randomized, or the um, the retrospective data, uh, the cohort data, and Aaron, I think you can speak to that as you collected it, um, and the issue was that we were still completing that, and it wasn't anticipated that the randomized trial would come out that quickly. Um, So we have a randomized trial followed up by a retrospective cohort study, which is very odd in its design, uh, but it wasn't the original intent. Um, But in in the uh, retrospective study, our findings kind of are consistent with what others had found. You know, when you're adding in a salvage therapy, which is primarily what this therapy is going to be in a retrospective study, most patients are failing vancomycin, you're adding on this to salvage what uh, what they were using, you know, the outcomes aren't great. And so I think that's what that study showed. Uh, We weren't able to hone down on maybe some initial signals that might have shown that the early switching to combination therapy um, could have had some improvement, primarily because our numbers were small and the improvements were very minor anyway. So we, we would have had to collect a lot of patients to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess so this is the time. We're in breakpoints. We share all of our dirty secrets. So uh so yes, Warren just spoke very eloquently to that prospective Garyak trial that honestly, when it was published, got a lot of uh a lot of heated debates in the ID community, which is it's kind of interesting. It's like we don't believe that this therapy could have really reduced mortality to zero. Um, and so that trial was ended early because everyone in the combination arm did so well compared to standard of care, but then the numbers were so small that it's hard to believe. So, yes, I was a first-year resident when we initially embarked on this journey. Uh, Warren came to me and said, hey, you want to do this retrospective study? I was like, sure, I want to look at thousands of charts. Um, And so just so everyone knows, this was my PGY1 project, transitioned into a first-year research rotation with first- month research rotation with Dr. Rose of my PGY2 year in infectious diseases and then we carried that through for another couple of years. Uh, we did expand that retrospective cohort study to four centers because I, I do believe you can, you can produce good observational data which COVID has I know kind of ruined for the world but pre-COVID we did try to do robust observational retrospective studies and so we matched any patient that got daptoceftaline at four centers to standard of care. And we went through these charts to find matches as close as possible. So that takes a really long time to do. Um, When you're looking at these patients, you want to, we had objective variables that we matched to, but then just as a clinician, when you're reading the chart you had that, you wanted to make sure that this patient seemed similar to the other patients. We tried as hard as possible to match combination patients to standard of care patients. But then when we went to evaluate that data, it's quite hard to do because as we said, a lot of these patients get the combination as salvage and then you're trying to, you have, you know, the mortality bias of patients in the standard of care that died, you have to survive long enough to be escalated to combination therapy. So it's quite hard uh, to make any reasonable claims about the benefit of combo therapy, but we did have a handful of patients that got daptoceftaline within 72 hours. And when we compared those um, to standard of care, there did seem to be a signal, especially in patients with endovascular sources. And then we see that. And then, so of course that was happening. We were working on analyzing that data while the randomized trial was enrolling. And it just so happened the randomized trial was published first because it was ended early. So we still have this big, I think, question mark of, should we give daptoceftaline combination therapy or whatever combination therapy empirically to patients with MRSA bacteremia. And if so, who are those patients? Steven, you did another trial answering this very question, different combos, but looking at combination therapy upfront for MRSA bacteremia. So after camera one, you guys journeyed into camera two, if you want to talk to us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah. So, so I guess the camera one results were sufficiently promising uh, that we were able to get some funding to support the next study camera two. We were still looking at vanc versus vanco plus flucloxacillin, but we now extended to 27 sites, four countries and a harder clinical outcome. So not duration of bacteremia anymore, but um, at day 90, a combination of mortality, clinical microbiological failure and persistent bacteremia. I won't go through the results in any detail, apart from saying that um, although persistent bacteremia was reduced with the combination, we saw no difference in the primary outcome. And if anything, Mortality was higher at 21% in the combination group compared to 16% in the vancomycin only group. And there was a clear and large signal of nephrotoxicity associated with combination therapy. One of the main learnings for us was that uh, I guess a pragmatic trial like this was possible, at least in, you know, in the countries that we were operating in. And we had a budget of about 2 million Australian dollars for the study, which comes out to about 5,000 Australian dollars per patient enrolled. And that's, equivalent to about three thousand us dollars um so i guess one lesson for us was that it, it's possible to to do these kinds of pragmatic studies at least i think outside of the us and i'd love to hear a bit more from from you guys as to you know the costliness of doing investigate initiated studies in the us when you don't necessarily have pharma funding to support you know drugs which might be off patent now um, and you know i'd love to see something like you know, ceftereline versus Dapto versus vanc. But is it it possible to conduct such trials?
1: Warren, I'll let you take that one um, as you've done more more trial work than I have.
2: Well, I mean, $3,000 a patient would be a dream. (laughs) I don't think that would uh, be close to what we would have here. I don't know the numbers, but it would be, you know, to enroll a, um, a group of 200 or so patients, I'm guessing it would be a $10 million study easily in the U.S., Um, but yeah, I think that, I think we'll talk about trial design or, or what we would like to see later, but I think you'd have to have, um, you'd have to have a Vanco versus DAPTO versus DAPTO. I mean, just escalated DAPTO ceftaroline, um, versus ceftaroline alone. And and that's, that's going to answer the question that we're talking about here, but to have that done, it's, that would be multifold. What we just talked about, I think, as far as numbers, Mm.
3: What makes it so expensive to, to do such studies? Like I've talked to Vance Fowler and you know, Tom Holland about these kinds of things, and exactly right, it's kind of multi-millions for a couple of hundred patients. And what makes it so, so expensive in the US system?
2: Well, the cost of care would be um, you know, heavily on the hospital administration side uh, as far as the bedtime, um, being in the hospital. The drugs are expensive for sure, but they're not going to drive a, a huge budget like that. Um, There's a lot of administrative overhead with um, blinding and funding the study. And I I can't speak to the Australian cost and why it's so cheap, but, you know, those things drive the cost easily in the U.S. Mm,
0: So if anyone is listening to the Breakpoints podcast and wants to sponsor this trial you have a lot of very intelligent investigators who are ready to go. All right, so we covered the in vitro data, we've covered clinical trial design that started to get us some prospective data, and we talked a little bit about retrospective observational data, and I guess just a general plug for all the residents and fellows out there to publish your residency projects because they can, in fact, be important even if you do it five years after you graduate residency.
2: But let's and when, move into- when, cl- in doubt, when in doubt, blame the mentor, I think is the take-home point here. <laughs>
0: We got It's okay. If you stretch it over a lot of years, you get two posters out of it instead of just one. Right. Warren? <laughs>
2: exactly. Make sure you blame them after you get your residency certificate though. <laughs>
0: yeah. Warren's a fantastic mentor. We're good. Okay. Katie, I want to hear from you about what actually happens in practice though. Cause all of these data are great and that's cool. But what, really matters for the clinician side of this is then what happens when you're actually faced with a patient and what are you actually going to do despite what the data say, right? So anecdotally, and I guess I can speak to looking through hundreds and hundreds of these charts, like where this combo really seems to shine is, and and I, I like what Steven said about You know, we clear duration of bacteremia faster, but does that impact any hard outcomes? And evidently not yet in what we've seen with the data, but maybe we need a more robustly designed trial in order to answer that for the daptoceftereline part. Um, What we saw retrospectively, of course, is that we where this combo just really was like, wow, this is crazy. Patients can live on this forever is like LVAD patients that could never get source control and they would be on combination therapy and they would clear. And then they could hang out on combo and, and be fine and clear. Um, so that seemed to be these deep-seated endovascular where source control is maybe partial or, in, or un, unattainable. Um, and that's where combo really seemed to shine. But Katie, what do you see in your clinical practice? And, and when are you using combination therapy, if ever?
1: Yeah, I'm definitely using combination therapy. And I would say that my usage of it is probably pretty similar to what most people are doing, which is patients are treated with monotherapy. And they're treated with monotherapy for a while, um, irrespective of device presence. And the reason for it is these drugs are expensive, and oftentimes they're restricted to ID, and so it takes a few days until ID gets consulted. Usually three, five, seven days later, these patients have remained bacteremic, and primary teams then call for ID to come in. So it's really being used primarily for salvage therapy rather than up front. And so we're five or seven days into therapy by the time we're actually adding these combination drugs.
0: Stephen, what about you? What do you see in your clinical practice?
3: Yeah, look, uh, it's probably similar. Um, there's a few things we might do slightly differently in, in Australia. We we typically treat empirically with combination of vank plus Fluclox up front for suspected staph or bacteremia. Uh, and that's um, partly because we think if it truly is MSSA, that we're actually doing the patient a disservice by not giving them a beta-lactam up front. So we, we start with the combination, then we de-escalate once to the targeted agent, once the susceptibilities become available at you know, 48, 72 hours. Um, interestingly, again, we, our use of DAPTO is very limited in, in Australia. So in camera two, where we, we allowed sites for choice of VANC or DAPTO up front, out of the 350-odd patients, only three received upfront DAPTO. So I think that sounds very different from, from what you guys are, are doing. Um, and even no, when we included...
0: That's similar. That, we that's that similar Yeah, in our... And I guess in Warren and I's data, it was uh, like two patients got DAPTO upfront. So almost, okay. almost everyone starts on Vanco. But what we saw, interestingly, was... Everyone starts on VANC monotherapy, but 50% of patients escalated to, escalated to DAPTO monotherapy. Yeah. So our kind of like logic is like VANCO for a couple of days, they don't clear, escalate to DAPTO because we think that is different, which we can yeah. have that okay. conversation sure. too, and then escalate to combo, I think is what we see. So. Yeah.
3: So I, I guess that's perhaps then where the difference is in that we, we don't switch to DAPTO all that much. and Even in camera two, I think there were only 13 patients overall who received DAPTO out of the 350 odd. We don't use keftaralene much or cefteroline as you guys say. Um, and for patients with persistent bacteria, again, similar to what Katie said at that day five, day seven mark, our practice is probably to add rifampin plus fucetic acid actually to the vancomycin. That's probably our main go-to. I, I don't know if that is, you know, works and certainly the ARREST trial suggests that rifampin um, didn't add very much, uh, but that was upfront. That wasn't at this kind of salvage end. And typically for DAPTO, we use it when we get into trouble with VANC adverse effects. So, you know, nephrotoxicity or um, allergies uh, or uh, neutropenia, those kinds of things. I guess one of the other areas where we sometimes do combine therapy is where it's a clearly toxin-mediated disease. So if you've got community MRSA, lots of cytotoxin production and, you know, things like cavitating pneumonia, we sometimes add clindamycin in those cases.
0: Interesting. Do you guys use linazolid at all?
3: Yeah, a little bit, but but not not so much for that kind of toxin mediated disease. I I think that that's an open question whether linazolid or clinda, you know. But but we often will use something that tries to switch off the toxin.
0: Interesting. This is completely off the subject of this podcast, but we actually just switched our necrotizing fasciitis algorithms to Zosyn linazolid empirically instead of vancomycin clinda, uh, mm. to just to just try to get rid of clindamycin altogether for C. diff. We looked at 120 trauma admissions for neck fascia over a year. Um, and like 8% of them had C. diff and yeah, just kind of crazy, crazy number. So we, we switched to zoos and empirically. And obviously we're going to evaluate that I mean, it'll yep. be observational. Um, we actually stole that idea from the Detroit medical center. So we're all just one big happy family. <laughs> <laughs> I, we just
3: we don't enough. see as much C. diff interestingly, for, for whatever reason. So we're not as um, averse to using clindamycin.
1: Interesting. I'm a big fan of linazolid for necrotizing strep infections in particular, because you have that toxin inhibition plus the bactericidal activity against strep. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I know. I just learned, at least in the United States, Clinda has like a 30 or 30, 40% resistance rate to certain strep species. It's like, and I mean, you could argue whether that matters for the toxin production and for its role in necrotizing fasciitis, but it was kind of shocking. I, again, I learned that from a mentor out of the Detroit Medical Center, and then uh, we, we, we made that switch. So interesting to evaluate, um, and interesting points about your practice in Australia compared to the United States. Um, so I think that's similar to me. I'm sure Warren is similar to what we saw um, at Wisconsin, um, but so... Let's continue this kind of thought though, because I think we all said the same thing in that patients get started on monotherapy, ID consult comes along for staph bacteremia, maybe five days, seven days we escalate if they're not clearing, but what, do you guys have a general rule, maybe Steven, you can speak to this and then Katie talk about what your physicians do, but is there like a, do you have like a cutoff, like I'm not going to let a patient be bacteremic for more than X days before I escalate or how do you approach this when you're seeing patients?
3: Uh, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because most of the data actually suggests if you go beyond day two, uh, that the prognosis is worse. So, you know, you can make an argument that you should get in earlier, but the reality is, I think I, 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 I'm happy generally to let patients go out to day five, you know, as long as they're clinically stable and perhaps it's the clinical stability that's more important than just whether they have a persistent bacteremia or not.
1: I agree. Um, what we usually see is around day five. Um, And then we are much quicker to jump to combination therapy in critically ill patients, so those in the ICU, or those that have sources of infection that we're not able to to manage. Um, So like you said, with your LVAD patients, or if they have an undrainable abscess somewhere, that's usually where um, we might jump to it a little quicker.
0: So that's an interesting point. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I wanted to ask, because sometimes... Because I would agree if we can't get source control and they're persistent, we would be more aggressive with antibiotics, but sometimes I hear the counter argument in that you can't have we have no source control, so antibiotics don't matter, and nothing's going to fix the patient, so just leave them on monotherapy. What are your thoughts on on the two sides of that coin?
1: I don't like leaving those patients on monotherapy uh, personally you're not going to do what you need to do, and I think a lot of the in vitro data have demonstrated that these combination therapies provide near sterilization. And so you might actually be able to treat or cure these patients that have undrainable abscesses or these devices that you can't remove. Um, So I'm a big fan of giving my patients the best chance um, for success that there is.
3: I guess it's also a useful point to push back at the surgeons, isn't it? To say, you know, you can control the source. Let's, let's get in there. Um, And And really push the point for for me to say, look, we are actually at this stage giving the best antibiotic therapy, patient continues to be septic and bacteremic, we need to get that source control. Of of course, uh, that doesn't always happen. And it's not always realistic to get the source control. But I think uh, my suspicion is the source control is much more important than the antibiotics that we, we use.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'd agree with all that in my practice. And but I think the, the key thing that sticks out, and I like uh, Stephen that you said, you know, really this probably matters on day one or day two, and we're not making these decisions till day five or whatnot. And so I, I think ideally we'd all probably agree that not every patient would need aggressive therapy up front. Some patients have relatively uncomplicated infections or are very healthy and are going to do well. But then other patients we know are not and other patients are are quite sick and we wait probably too long to, to put them on more aggressive therapy. So the big question is going to be how do we identify these patients that would most optimally benefit from more aggressive therapy and, and use these drugs ju- judiciously. And I think, Warren, you've done a lot of work in that space and trying to identify patients at high risk of mortality and perhaps ways we can be thinking in the future um, to implement this in practice. So do you want to describe to us some of your work, uh, particularly with cytokines and the role of empiric escalation in patients with MRSA?
2: Sure. Uh, This has been something that's been kind of simmering under the radar of pharmacy, I think, or for for our field for a while. We've been working on this um, for about eight years now um, and slowly incrementally showing how this might lead to more effective antibiotic utilization. In these patients. So just a nod to the uh, early career investigators, this idea was actually born out of an SIDP Young Investigator of the Year Award, uh, which I uh, won back in the day in 2008. And interestingly, it was an award that was looking at, at the time, vancomycin MICs were all the talk. And so we were looking at how tolerance might affect the outcome in patients. And so we screened, we screened, we screened, Uh, We found zero association with vancomycin susceptibility, tolerance, which is a a bactericidal uh, measurement, and um, really didn't find anything related to the drug. And so talking to some colleagues, I went back and talked to my colleague, George Sekoulis again, um, plus Richard Proctor, who was at Madison at the time, a physician, and then Sanjay Shukla, who's a geneticist up at Marshfield Clinic. And we decided, let's go back and look at the patients because the patients are still dying. Despite the fact that they're getting effective antibiotic activity or antibiotic treatment by the MIC, at least. So, we went back, we started collecting samples on patients who had bacteremia. We collected them at the time they came in at presentation. And our initial screen was just a pilot to look at uh, maybe what was dysregulated in patients. And so, we screened uh, a few different cytokines, and we didn't know what to expect, um, but we found that. IL-10 was elevated in patients that died independently of any other factor, which is very interesting. So um, things that drive mortality, like age, duration of bacteremia, which we've talked about, were were both independently associated, and then IL-10 was independent. So. I thought it was very interesting. And also in that study, um, we found that IL-1 beta was low in patients that had persistent bacteremia. This actually lays into one of Stephen's colleagues' uh, work, Ben Howden, who has shown that patients who have elevated vancomycin MICs have a lack of being able to stimulate the immune response. Um, So it doesn't stimulate the inflammasome to produce IL-1. So there's potentially a way the organism hides from the patient and not able to really recognize it. So it was interesting. The mortality marker is arguably the most important outcome so we decided to drive down an IL10 and then we looked at whether IL10 how it why it's elevated and why it's driven up and some of the initial earlier studies in animals showed that peptidoglycan is a driver of IL10 function and so we hypothesized that if they have higher intravascular burdens they're going to have higher peptidoglycan concentrations which you can't really measure in patient serum but you can measure the burden of bacteria and so we did that we correlated IL10 with the intravascular burden of bacteria in the bloodstream, I think for the first time in staff, I think it's been done over time with strep and other organisms, but staff is hard to do. Um, so we, we found that, really found the correlation of why IL-10 is elevated. And I think plays a nice uh, lead into, well, if you give a really effective antibiotics up front, you're going to reduce that inoculum, potentially driving down the burden or the, uh, the marker that could be elevated in patients that have a high risk. So our recent paper just came out in CID It's been out for a while, but just as in the journal, I think as of July, but we found that beta-lactams are able to drive down IL-10 in patients, so we measured it over time and found IL-10 slowly goes down when given a beta-lactam, as opposed to if they're given vancomycin, it does not. And then uh, beta-lactams are very well known to stimulate inflammasome activity, and we correlated that that IL-1 beta goes up when you give a beta-lactam, helping probably to clear the bacteria, which Beta-lactams are very effective against MSSA, but they also stimulate an immune response that other antibiotics don't. So that's kind of a long story, but I thought it was nice to go from a, a project that failed to actually finding really new information off of that hypothesis. What we're doing now, we're we're hypothesizing that there is a group of patients that can benefit from combinations. Of how do you identify them? And I think these biomarkers may, be a, may play a key role in how you might be able to identify them. If you look at the geriatric paper, which we discussed, they do talk about IL-10 in that paper and showing that IL-10, when it's low, it really doesn't matter what you give them. Patients do well. Uh, when it was elevated, which was, I think in that study was above five picograms per ml, the combination group showed a substantial change in, in um, mortality benefit. So those are low numbers. They're they're not something that was powered, but it's a really interesting finding and I think plays into low-risk patients. Maybe you don't need to give a very potent combination. You can give them several different drugs and they may do fine as long as it's active. And then high-risk patients are really where you're going to see this. So looking at how you might separate these out early is one way we think could be really important.
3: I think it's such fascinating fascinating work, Warren, and I've loved reading the papers that you guys have um, published over the years. And um, a cell paper as well. Recently, I, I saw so congratulations on that. Yeah,
2: we we just published that last week. It again identifies earlier components of IL10 that we could, can be modifiable, along with how cytokines relate to one another in bacteremia. And then interestingly, in that paper, um, this was published in early September. Thyroxin levels. If you look at the old literature, animals with and people with low thyroxin have a high mortality rate in sepsis. So, is there a role for in patients giving thyroxin potentially? to help mediate this poor outcome and again that's a long way from here to there but these are patient samples that were analyzed and thyroxine came up as an important marker that was low in patients that died
3: what i have found fascinating has also been that you can almost predict how long someone's gonna be bacteremic based on your kind of baseline um, blood tests you know your il-10 level and whether how likely they are to die and this is regardless of what treatment they're getting so, I, like, if I can just challenge you a little bit, um, maybe it's just you're, you're finding that the die is cast. You know, those with a high IL-10 are just going to do badly, regardless of what therapy you give, whether it's you know combination or not. It's almost like you know a patient with stage four metastatic cancer, they're going to do badly regardless what you give them. Whereas maybe it's actually the lower risk group where you know, perhaps the 10% mortality shouldn't be 10%. That's where we could get it down to, you know, one or 2%. Maybe it's the lower risk group that, that you could make a bigger difference to. So that, that's just been kind of floating around in my head and be interested to see, hear your
2: thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I very much appreciate that. I, I don't know the answer to that. Certainly, is it, a, is it just a signal or is it a modifiable marker? Um, I, it, it, the studies we're doing, we don't have enough patients to show that it, that it can be modifiable and improve their outcome. But uh, I've heard that argument, and I, I, I do agree with it. It does need to be evaluated. I think that's uh, something that can be designed in like a clinical trial. For example, if there's potentially patients from the CAMERA-2 study that have samples left, potentially, we could analyze. That could be interesting to try to find uh, whether these patients did better because of a certain drug and, and related to that biomarker. But yeah, potentially in that low-risk group, is there a window for opportunity? That could be something that could fall out of this as well. The other thing we're thinking about is, but do you give everyone combination and then use a biomarker to de-escalate and that way they'd get only a couple days um, rather than escalate up where you, we know that the chance of an outcome being successful is lower than if you started early up front. There are kind of two ways to think about that, I think, with these types of biomarkers. So yeah.
3: unfortunately, we didn't collect the samples in camera two, <laughs> otherwise we would get them to, we're hoping for our next studies that we can have some nested sub-studies um, within a clinical trial uh, to be able to, to look at some of these factors.
1: Lauren, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are. Do you think that the driver for the reduction in the IL-10 in these patients was the combination or was it the addition of the beta-lactam?
2: So the paper I just referred to in CID, that was both in MSSA and MRSA. Now, all the MRSA patients had daptoseftiroline, which is from the subset of patients from the clinical trial, from the GERIAC trial, but they were MSSA patients in that group as well. Yeah, I don't know the answer. We, I mean, there's some really good data historically that show that beta-lactams are very immune stimulatory. And so that would really play well into the hypothesis we're showing into the study. So it, it seems that the addition of beta-lactam would, would do that. We just, we, we don't have concrete proof of that, right? I mean, we don't have, let's take an animal, let's give them an IL-10, let's knock out a pathway and show that it doesn't happen. I mean, we don't have that kind of concrete proof, but Based on the previous study, data that have been done with beta-lactams, it seems to fall into that area that giving it to them would stimulate that response.
0: Warren, is that a class effect? Like all beta-lactams, we see the same immune response, or is, do certain beta-lactams signal that to a greater degree?
2: From what I've seen, it's been all beta-lactams, but I don't know that it's been studied comprehensively. Interesting.
0: Thanks, guys. That was awesome discussion. And just a quick point, we're, uh, we're big fans of stewardship means getting patients on the right drugs faster on the Breakpoints podcast, so we're big fans of empiric escalation, so kind of enforcing that mentality that stewardship people are here to get patients on the right drugs, not just to stop think so One last question for you with all of that, because it's absolutely fascinating data. Um, maybe you and Steven can both comment on this. If we want to combine all of that work into and uh, in identifying these patients, how would you envision designing that prospectively? So if you were wanting to incorporate your biomarker work with a prospective trial, what do you envision that would look like?
2: I guess I could start. Um, I, I think we looking at the two options of, uh, escalate up or escalate down, we would have really an arm of standard of care. You know, having the daptocephteryline probably is the most intriguing uh, role, but we could use any beta lactam, I suppose. But um, probably starting with daptocephteryline, you know, would we have um, an arm where we'd have uh, that as a combination, uh, selecting out these biomarkers? Now, you know, for a IL-10, can that be selected in the lab and, and ordered? It can. Um, we've tried to do that at Wisconsin to get that into the lab as a running lab which is very challenging because they have to dedicate a platform to IL-10. Um, you can order it out for patients with lupus and you get a result back so you can order it to a repository and it comes back. It just takes a couple of days for that to happen so I think in ideally what we'd like to have is something on site um, and we're trying to work on that to get a better platform that we can have it more available and ready to use in the lab but Having it on site to be able to escalate quickly or de-escalate quickly, I, I th- see a trial of a de-escalation trial where you continue patients on combination, and then if they have a low risk, then we just take them off and compare that to the standard of care. And what you take them off to, whether it would be dapto alone or Septeroline alone, I mean, that could whole be a whole different podcast potentially. But you know, I, I think it would be on the discretion of the provider. Probably dapto mycin because it's approved for MRSA, but. Um, there's arguments both ways.
0: It's a good segue because I think the next thing I wanted to discuss was kind of moving back into the clinical practice side because again these are really intriguing data but right now we are limited in what we can do in in real world practice because we don't have these biomarkers readily available. We don't have robust data to know how they translate into what we would do with patient care. So in practice if you start patients on combo therapy as Warren just said do you keep them on combo for the rest of their six to eight weeks for their endocarditis or whatnot or wherever you're treating? Or do you deescalate to monotherapy? And if you deescalate to monotherapy, what agent are you picking?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in first. Um, I think that's the golden question. Uh, can you deescalate? And if so, when do you deescalate? And unfortunately, there aren't really any classical data to suggest which timeframe is best. Um, there are in vitro data that we did in, um, during my fellowship where we looked at de-escalation at 96 hours, so four days, and we found that as long as you de-escalated to a susceptible agent, you're good to go. Now, clinically, we're not seeing it that quickly. Um, usually, we de-escalate to monotherapy between five and seven days. Depending how long the patient was bacteremic, how severely ill they were. And ultimately, we decided which agent to deescalate to based on a couple different factors, MIC absolutely being one of them, um, but also just patient characteristics. How much longer of therapy do they have? Where are they going to receive therapy? As Warren mentioned, you know, Dapto does have the, the MRSA indication there for bacteremia, but also it's more convenient and arguably more narrow spectrum as well. And so I find that more often than not, we deescalate to DAPTO. Um, But if it does have an elevated DAPTO-MIC, we do use septarily.
3: I guess for me, uh, it depends on a number of factors. Uh, It's, you know, if I'm using the combination for that enhanced rapidity of bacterial killing, then I'm happy to deescalate after the sepsis and the bacteremia has been controlled and and, has, has gone away. If it's for biofilm killing and improved tissue penetration, so for example, someone with a prosthetic joint and they're bacteremic and we start rifampin and fusidic acid, I often actually continue that until the end of the intravenous therapy and possibly even beyond that as a longer oral tail. Uh, and then if it's for switching off toxin production, say with clindamycin, again, it's once sepsis and bacteremia is controlled and that burden of infection has been reduced, I'm usually happy to stop it at that point.
0: Awesome. Thanks, guys. And then another question. We have talked a lot about daptoceftariline. We talked a little bit about vanco and anti-staphylococcal penicillins with the CAMERA trial. Any other combinations that we're considering in clinical practice uh, that have recent data that might be beneficial?
3: I'll get jump in here, Erin, um, if I may actually challenge this assumption that combination therapy is better uh, because in fact all the data to date suggests that combination therapy is not better up front at this stage uh, particularly when we're looking at a hard clinical endpoint of mortality so going back to even i think it was 1982 cause endocarditis adding gentamicin in reduced the duration of bacteremia but made no difference to mortality their rest study with refampin camera 2 with anti-staphylococcal beta-lactans for mrsa um, I think you guys have recently discussed the DASH trial for MSSA bacteremia with DAPTO and, uh, and anti staphylococcal beta lactam. And there's been the more recent Spanish trial of um, DAPTO versus DAPTO plus phosphomycin for MRSA. So, all these prospective randomized controlled trials have not found a benefit from combination therapy. So, for me, the burden of evidence actually lies firmly in the court of advocates for combination therapy. And maybe this is a bit controversial, but that's my feeling at the moment. I, I mean, combination therapy may well be better and we had certainly hoped it would be in the CAMERA 2 trial. we could continue to test this hypothesis in our next platform trial, SNAP. We could compare vancomycin with vanc plus kefazilin. We could look at the addition of adjunctive clindamycin. But I think, and certainly this is the view in Australia, that until the data shows that combination therapy is better, I think that the standard of care outside of clinical trials should continue to be monotherapy at this stage.
1: And I think the question, though, is until it shows that it's better, and the question really is, what does better mean? So you could also argue on the flip side that clearance of bacteremia quicker is better. Yes, it makes us as clinicians feel better, for sure. But if a patient's not bacteremic, they're probably going to feel better, too. And we're showing that longer bacteremia does worsen outcomes. And I realize we haven't demonstrated that in clinical trials, but I don't... I agree with you in that I don't think combination therapy is appropriate for everyone, but I think there are certain situations where monotherapy is failing that escalating to it would be beneficial. Um, Other combination that hasn't been mentioned that I'm particularly interested in um, is daptomycin plus Bactrim. Um, I find that combination interesting for two reasons. Uh, One, you have the dual anti-MRSA therapy again. And then the other reason is I can give it PO um, and so that makes it exciting as
2: well. I think I, I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, it's an interesting dichotomy because you you're have you treating a patient in front of you, the patient is failing, I give them this drug and I've done it with a couple of patients and they have a better outcome. Then it's studied in a clinical trial and you don't see that response. That's a hard thing for a clinician to get over, um, but it is supported by the data in the clinical trials. I think the problem is in the clinical trials all the patients are lumped together, whether they're low versus high risk. And so when you look at the outcomes in these patients, you don't see a benefit. There probably is some patients that benefit with the with a combination, whether it's upfront or later, it's, we don't know the answer to that yet, probably upfront, but how, what are the patients? It may be only 10% of the patients you're studying. Um, so I think until we find out a marker or something that's there that could show us these patients might benefit, I think we have to stick with probably standard of care, unless. Um, you know, you have a high-risk patient that an ID physician can see right in front of them based on their, their risk factors, um, then they, then I think that might be appropriate. But empirically, I don't see a role for combination therapy empirically at this time. Um, I will say, like, things coming down the pipeline look very promising. I like the data with daptofosfomycin. It's interesting. If you, if you look at what phosphomycin does as a drug, it induces PBP-1 or suppresses PBP-1 production. We've shown PBP-1 is very important for adaptomycin activity, um, so that's kind of an interesting kind of lead into that and maybe why phosphomycin might work very effectively. Um, the uh, lysine Xeva has some very promising activity that's mm-hmm. coming out, um, and then there's some monoclonal antibodies that are showing really good promise um, when, when targeting specific toxins and stuff that I think were presented a couple years ago when ECMID was actually a live conference, so um, that was very interesting. Um, so I think my my theory is that I wonder if antibiotics, if we've reached the end of whether, if we can do any more with antibiotics, right? I mean, you're giving very potent therapies to patients. They're susceptible. What else can we do for them? You know, is it immune response, modulating that versus giving more antibiotic, which kill, just kills the organism, I guess, the same way? Um, there, I think maybe the future might be more antibody-based or immunity-based rather than antibiotic-based or the lysine approach.
0: Thank you all for your discussion on that. I think those are all excellent points. Um, I'm intrigued to see, Stephen, you guys continue to study vanxafaslin because I think that is a combination that people are still quite interested in. Back to one of the earliest points you made in that you, you do start patients on combo therapy for 48 hours until you know if it's MSSA or MRSA. So is there even just a benefit there? And Warren, that was really fascinating discussion on non-antibiotic therapies and the adjunctive role they're going to play. I know we'd covered the Exaba case Late Breaker on a Breakpoints podcast previously, and very interested to see how those therapies are going to have a role in clinical practice. Let's briefly touch on non-MRSA. This is the point of this podcast was MRSA combination therapy, but we do see persistent MSSA. We do see persistent VRE. Um, and again, to the point that potentially early combo helps because you're covering optimally all organisms. So if it is MSSA, you're on an anti-staphylococcal beta-lactam empirically, which maybe is beneficial for that. So what do you guys know or any thoughts on combinations for MSSA or enterococcus?
1: So there's definitely data um, in particular for VRE. We have very few drugs that we can use against VRE. We're seeing elevated daptomycin MICs, needing bigger doses of daptomycin to treat VRE infections. And so several studies have been explored for this, and the most act, effective beta-lactams that have been utilized with daptomycin have been, again, ceftaroline, ampicillin, and ertapenem. Um, there isn't a ton of clinical data to support a lot of these combinations, um, but I'm sure that that's forthcoming.
3: Uh, I think for MSSA, we've got really good antibiotics. Like We've talked a lot about beta-lactams, and I think beta-lactams are you know, excellent you know, killing MSSA. It, it generates that immune response that we've, we've heard about. So I actually find it hard to know whether there is much of a role at all for, for combination, apart from perhaps, you know, doing things like turning off toxin production. The ARREST trial uh, looked, was principally MSSA patients. So there was probably 600 patients with MSSA randomized to uh, adjunctive rifampicin or not, and really didn't show any, any difference in that patient group. So I actually Generally, we'll be happy to stick with uh, you know good dose of a beta-lactam for MSSA. And if it's persistent, just search really hard for the source and try to control that.
0: I think the only lab work I know of with MSSA is Cefazolin-Urtapenem. Unless, Warren, you know of other combinations that we'd maybe try. But in general, I think we all agree, just give aggressive beta-lactams.
2: Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of with yeah. the Cefazolin-Urtapenem work.
0: All right, guys. Well, this has been awesome, awesome discussion on MRSA bacteremia and the potential role of combination therapy. I think we went through kind of the whole story, the history, the in vitro, the clinical data, what we do in our practice. I really can't thank you guys enough for your time and your insights. As we wrap up, I want to ask you, this is kind of your moment. So what, if you can leave our listeners with anything, really, what would be your final kind of words on this topic and what do you think is the biggest unanswered question in this space or what you would challenge clinicians and researchers to do moving forward?
3: I can start. I'd love to see the trial of DAPTO versus VANCO versus ceftaroline for MRSA bacteremia. And um, get. I think that's actually, I think that's first base. Work out which one of those is best. And then you build on that. You, you build, you know, your combination on top of whichever is the best single agent uh, to me it's a bit like COVID you know we're building on top of remdesivir now or we're building on top of dexamethasone so to me if we can get to that first base, and uh, you know that that's what I would like to see
2: I would agree uh, answering that question would be fundamental in how we would move forward uh, for me you know what I would really want researchers and clinicians to focus on is finding the right patient for these If if we do have a combination that works what patients do they work in and so um, that's things that we are working on. Um, and I would really think it would be great if others could, um, uh, help move that story along with a different perspective as well.
0: I remember I gave a talk once and I said, in general, if you can use a beta-lactam to treat an infection, you should. And then we go to all our other therapies and Katie texted me and was like, really? Cause what about MRSA and cefteroline?" And I was like, I don't know. I think that's a question we need to answer is should you use a beta-lactam? Uh, so I don't know if you remember that Katie, but.
1: I do. I don't, but it sounds like something <laughs> I would have said. Yeah, I, I agree with Stephen. I would love to know, um, you know, upfront, what is better? Dapto versus Ceftaroline. I don't even think you need to, I mean, you have to for standard of care, keep Venco in there, but personally, I don't care about Venco. We're still figuring out how to dose that drug after 60 years so controversial as it may be, I don't particularly care what it looks like in that trial. I want to know Dapto versus Subtheroline, and I agree with Warren. Determining which patients are the ones that would benefit the most from this combination therapy would be the next best question to answer. Um, and I would want to take the next step further since we're all building on each other. And if we do that combination therapy, when is the optimal time for deescalation? Because I don't wanna keep the patient on two drugs for an eternity. There are potential long-term consequences that can occur from that. And so that's that would be the third next question that I would want answered.
0: Well, thank you guys so much. I think those are all very important questions. Hopefully to our audience who's listening, we've, we've stimulated some of these thoughts. We're always open to international collaborations, So we'll put all of our contact information. Maybe we can get some research going out of this podcast, but a very common infection, a very difficult infection. And I think we answered a lot of important questions and generated even more valuable ideas. Uh, So thank you guys for joining me to our audience. As a reminder, Breakpoints is produced by the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary and featured our guest speakers, Dr. Katie Barber, Warren Rose, and Stephen Tong. Our podcast production team also includes Rachel Britt, Elizabeth Covington, Sarah Alsimony, Julie Ann Justo, Zara Escobar, Sarah Spitznagel, Travis Jones, and Kelly Cole. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials, both for now and the future.